Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Welcome to the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Young Arthroplasty Group podcast, The Augment. I'm Anna Cohen Rosenblum, an academic hip and knee surgeon at Louisiana State University, where our department mascot is an alligator freezing in the 60 degree weather. I'm Mark Mildren. I'm in private practice in Eugene, Oregon at the Slocum Center for Orthopedics, where everything is louder. I perform hip replacements through a TFL sparing approach. And my name is Chad Kruger. I'm a hip and knee reconstruction surgeon at the Rothman Orthopedic Institute in Philadelphia. I don't have anything as funny as what Mark just said. So we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Anna, thanks for having us here. Of course. And now let's meet our guests. Hello, everyone. I'm Jamie Bellamy. I'm an arthroplasty surgeon at Womack Army Medical Center in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Hi, I'm Dusty Schuett. I'm an arthroplasty surgeon at Naval Medical Center out in San Diego, uh, where our mascot is a frustrated orthopedic surgeon waiting for a spinal. I'm Brandon Pryoreshi. I'm a hip and knee specialist in private practice in Middletown, Connecticut. Thank you, everyone. So what our guests all have in common is that they've served in the armed forces, and we'd like to get them together to talk about their experience. So I think my first question for the panel really is just how did you get involved in the military in the first place, if you don't mind telling us about it? I can go first. My first experience with it was I was applying for medical school and I heard about the Health Professional Scholarship Program. I called in Army, Air Force, and Navy recruiters all at once. And the Navy called me back first. So that's how I ended up in the Navy. Though to those young aspiring rugby surgeons, that's not a great way to make decisions in life, but it's turned out okay. Yeah, Dusty, I, I had a similar experience myself. I heard about the HPSP scholarship in college. My dad didn't really even understand what medical school was. So I had no idea how that was going to work out. And I heard about it. He talked to a recruiter. And as a 19-year-old, I made the decision to join the Army after talking to them and you know, hoping I actually got into med school. So very similar to your experience. Jamie, what about you? Yeah, so when I went to medical school, I had no plans to join the military. And then I saw the huge number of how much medical school cost. And so then they had a like seminars on ways that you could pay for medical school and the HPSP scholarship was one of them. And I've always been drawn to the military just because of leadership opportunities, the organization, I like structure. So it just seemed like a good fit for me. Just for our listeners, what is the HPSP scholarship? Tell us about that. It's a great question, Anna. So it's the Health Professional Scholarship Program. Long story short, you serve the Army for a certain period of time, and they pay for your med school for that amount of time as well. Or Navy or Air Force. Agreed. Sorry, I'm, I'm Army biased as a former Army person. Uh, I will say Army, but I mean Army, Air Force, or Navy. Thank you, Dusty, for that clarification. And for full <laughs> disclosure, it is a contract. It is not a scholarship. Scholarships <laughs> do not require years of your life in payback for them. So it is called a scholarship, but that is absolutely definitely a misnomer. It is not a financially beneficial decision to make in the long run. So I came in a little different. When I graduated high school, I told my dad I was going to join the Marines. And he said, you're an idiot, go to college. So I went to college. I got an engineering degree. I did civil engineering and I told my dad I was going to join the army to be in the civil corps. And he said, you're an idiot, get a job. (laughs) When I decided to switch to medicine, I called my dad and said, hey, I just joined the Navy. I called the Air Force first and they'd already met their quota. In retrospect, that's probably the best thing that's ever happened to me. Air Force bases are in the middle of nowhere and Navy bases are in gorgeous tropical locations and Jacksonville, North Carolina. 
So Brandon, do you mind just talking about how did training work when you were a surgeon? Did you go through a civilian residency and then do like a military fellowship? Did you do a military residency? How does that work for a military surgeon? It's quite variable. So there's the UCIS, which is the Uniform Services Health Sciences Center, where you can go and do your med school outside of the HPSP scholarship pathway. The HPSP scholarship pathway pays for your medical school as an out service. So you're technically in the reserves, you owe them one month a year. Typically those are done either studying for your boards, they pay for that or away rotations as you're trying to find matched positions. And then residency, depending upon the military's needs can either be at a military residency program or for me, I got out serviced for the five years of residency training. And then when I finished residency, I got a letter telling me where I was going after that. What does out service mean? Out service just means non-military. So you're technically non-active duty deferment for specialty training or NADS. It means that essentially you have to send them a letter once a year saying that you don't have HIV and that's it. That's all it takes to be NADS. (laughs) (laughs) So he's really, he's not that far off. I remember I I initially got failed for my army physical because I previously had an elbow surgery. And they saw the scar on my arm and I got failed by a physician who was, bless his soul, serving his country, but oxygen bound in a wheelchair himself. And I found the irony of me getting failed for military service by uh, that uh, individual. Ironic. Luckily, I was able to get a waiver uh, saying that my arm was fit for duty. But it was, uh, you know, an inter- it was an eye-opening experience to begin my career for sure. And then for my training, I trained through the military, came out of medical school, owed four years, did a, a general surgery internship because I hadn't seen the light. Uh, yeah, and then did two years of general medical officer, and then came back as an ortho intern on through for five. And then I went to uh, Okinawa, Japan for two years after residency, and then came back to Boston for fellowship, and then been back in San Diego since then. I had kind of a longer path that's a little bit different. So did the HPSP scholarship for medical school. Took me three times to get into orthopedics. So I actually became a, I did a transitional internship at Brook Army Medical Center. And then I became a flight surgeon, which is a six week course where you basically learn how to be a primary care doctor for pilots and the crew. So there's like specific criteria you have to go by for different medical problems and to approve them to be able to fly. So did that. And then I deployed right away to Iraq for six months and then came back to Fort Hood where I was stationed. I actually applied whenever I was an intern, didn't get it, and then applied whenever I was a flight surgeon and got into ortho at that point. So then I went to residency and had to do internship over again. So it was five years and then went to fellowship. So I did a civilian fellowship in arthroplasty in Atlanta. And then I've been at Fort Bragg at Womack Army Medical Center since then. And basically, the other thing about fellowship is that for every year of fellowship that you do, you owe the Army two more years. So, got to be... Same deal in the Navy. But if you do two years of fellowship, you only owe them two years. Yeah, it's, it's basically year for year, but minimum is two. So, every time you want to do some training, every time you want to do a little bit extra, the military tax on a little bit extra training, a little bit extra obligation time. Now, are you able to use your fellowship? Because <clears throat> when I think of typical like military injuries, I don't think of, especially in the adult reconstruction world, we think of older patients. I don't think of like active military people. Are you able to use your fellowship in the military while you're there? Or is it more, you know, sports injuries, trauma injuries, stuff like that? 
So we're taking care of a lot of different populations. So like I'm in San Diego, our catchment area is about 250,000 people, which includes active duty, their spouses, their children, as well as retirees and their spouses. So I'm 90% arthroplasty for my surgeries. So yeah, so it's mostly hip and knees. I think Jamie's pretty similar. Yeah, for Fort Bragg, it's it's probably, if not the largest, one of the largest army bases in the country. And we have the airborne units and the special forces. So there's lots of airborne injuries. So we get quite a bit of trauma. And then it's mostly sports for our facility, but just like Dusty, I mean, we have a huge retirement community. And then there's also a local VA where I actually go to clinic and bring those patients to our hospital. I would kill for 90% hip and knee replacements. I'm in private <laughs> practice and I'm rocking like a 20% rate right now. So what are you doing the rest of the time? Oh God, fixing hand fractures and kissing babies. It was interesting because I was a generalist in the army, orthopedic community specialist, whatever the appropriate term is, you know, in the army for uh, my service after residency. And then I went into practice like uh, as an, an employed physician for like a year and a half before coming back to do fellowship. And it was honestly, my practice in the military was very similar to what it was like when I was, you know, a, a community guy in, in, in the private world as well. You know, a lot of people think it's a lot different and it probably depends on what your practice is and where you're located, but I was probably 60% sports, 20% trauma, 20% arthroplasty um, in the army. And I, was, I think it was pretty similar to that in my uh, private practice as well. So just like practices really differ in the civilian department where you go to, I mean, I would, I think I would be stabbed if I tried to do an ACL right now you know, by one of my partners and uh, probably <laughs> rightfully so. So, you know, it really depends on kind of where you end up, but, you know, I was doing 50 something ACLs a year, I, I think in the army. So it's an interesting mix. It correlates pretty well. I think. I've got an ACL on Friday. I just see that as like a 20 year investment in a uni that I'll get to do eventually. Nice. I love the ACL surgery. That's my favorite sports surgery. And actually Chad and I were partners for his little stint before he got out and because I went to fellowship for arthroplasty, I hadn't done an ACL in like over a year. And that was one of the great things about our practice was you could be like, hey, can you just scrub with me for a couple cases so I can get back up to speed, you know, for ACLs. So um, I, I what mean, is yeah. happening with this podcast? We need to stop talking about this trash <laughs> ligament and get back. <laughs> this get is back like reverse to- arthroplasty <laughs> here. I, know, I don't <laughs> understand what's happening. I'm sorry. Uh, let's, let's focus on the topic at hand, please. Oh, but- <laughs> I, I will say it was cool. And I, I think most military bases, at least the ones I'm, I'm exposed to, like the, the co-scrubbing and stuff, because most of the population is younger surgeons. Some have done a fellowship, some want to do a fellowship and haven't, haven't done it yet. It was very educational in that regard. It was very easy to pass, like, you know, talk about stuff. No one ever felt bad. You know, like, hey, I got this coming up. What are your thoughts? It's very similar to kind of the group I had in fellowship as well. And how we, you know, the different side chats we have now on WhatsApp and, and so forth as well. But that type of camaraderie, is, I think, is pretty unique within the military. I'm sure there's other practices that have it too. I, we all form our little cliques anywhere we are. But it was, I thought, very beneficial and, and, and a lot of fun to be a part of as well. And uh, you, you always had someone to talk to. I would agree with Chad on that. I think so. My first duty station, I was one of two, and there, without the pressures for production, and with the excessive amount of free time that you have in the military as a surgeon. Anytime there was a tough case, I was scrubbing with my partner. He was scrubbing with me. And it was a great way to transition out of training into 
learning how to do these cases and how to manage an operating room and how to get out of sticky situations. Dusty, have you learned how to manage an operating room yet? <laughs> Quietly from the corner. That's a very great question. If I've learned how to manage an operating room based on uh, turnover times today, I clearly have failed at that miserably. <laughs> but out of Brandon's point, like my first two years, I was in Okinawa. We didn't have the ability to do any arthroplasties except for radial heads. So we didn't have any opportunity to do real arthroplasties. So I did some vestigial ligament reconstructions and things like that, but I like to think of it as like a, uh, you know, yin and yang type of thing. I put some in then and I take them all out now. So. <laughs> the cosmic balance is restored. Yeah. I'm sure one of the questions that people have that are considering military service and being a surgeon in the military is deployments. You guys wouldn't mind talking about what are the chances of getting deployed? And obviously that changes with current events and all that. And if you did get deployed, what was that like? And just kind of talk about that experience. I'll lead this off. It's varied. Okay. Just, I think it's true from every service line. Ultimately, you really don't control your own fate, right? I mean, you could do everything that you want and, you know, hit every box and get glowing recommendations. But the bottom line is when, when your number comes up, you go where they tell you to go and you can not like it as much as you want. And it doesn't really matter. That's where you're going to go. And it's, you know, there's some bartering if you want back and forth, but ultimately it's depends on the service needs of the country. So, you know, I deployed to Kuwait is where I was based out of, which is a much different deployment than, you know, going to, you know, Eastern Afghanistan, right? So, but it kind of depends on wherever you get stationed and where they need anything. And it's kind of the same for after residency in terms of what base you go to. It's certainly there's needs of bases for certain types of surgeons with certain fellowships or generalists and so forth as well, uh, if you have research desires. But at the end of the day, you get sent where you get sent, and then you kind of figure everything out from there. Flexibility. The, the saying that we had was the needs of the Navy. That's what determines what you do and where you go. There's different levels of care in the military. It goes one through five. So the first level is actually the opposite of how we think of it here. You know, that's the lowest level of care. So like a battalion aid station. And that's where I was for my first deployment. And basically, mm -hmm. you've got some pills on the shelf. You've got some oxygen, some IV fluid. And that's about it. There's not a whole lot there. Level two has a little bit more. You've got some imaging there. If you're on a forward surgical team, that's considered a level two. So you can perform some surgeries. So I was on that whenever I went to Afghanistan. Very austere environment. Basically like camping for the whole time that you're there. You got to be really flexible and open-minded. And then my last deployment I just got back from was a level three. That was a combat support hospital. So that one has a lot of capabilities, including CT scan at about almost every surgical specialty you could think of, vascular surgery, trauma surgeon, orthopedics, ophthalmologist, neurosurgeon, and ENT. And then we had two ER doctors and a medicine doctor and an ICU doctor. So that level has, it, it's still in a combat environment, but it has basically everything that you would need to to do. And then level four is launch dual in Germany. They have most things that you would have stateside and level five is all the stateside hospitals. I think the other thing that you do a lot when you're deployed is, is educate other surgeons and your, you know, maybe more combat focused colleagues. Uh, I remember when I was in Kuwait, they were splitting a team up to go to Syria and they asked, you know, if I could be the surgeon for him. And I started talking to the, the commander who was, you know, putting this together. 
I was like, well, what are you looking for? And they're well, you know, someone gets, you know, shot in the abdomen, like, you know, you just need to take care of them. I'm like, I, I, I don't know what I'm like, that's well beyond what I do. And I had to educate them on like, I'm a surgeon, but I focus on orthopedics, which is like bones and joints. I don't operate in the abdomen. And it was legitimately a two day conversation of why I didn't think I was probably best suited to, you know, take care of appendectomies and all the other stuff that would have to happen or, you know, open bellies in a different environment. So again, there's an educational part of that as well, trying to figure out how to work with, within a larger team. You kind of get taught to just say yes, but just like uh, in every everyday life, if you find yourself over your head, you kind of educate them on why no is the right answer too. And my first uh, deployment was as a general medical officer. So I'd completed just a general surgery internship and then uh, went with the Marines because I didn't want to be stuck on a ship. And then we got deployed to spend five months of a seven month deployment on a ship and went to like seven different countries and spent a couple months over in the Middle East. And fortunately, nothing too kinetic, but there's definitely a lot of time of like teaching people kind of what you do, what you know, and working with other people. While we were in Jordan, I got to go to the operating room with a couple of the Jordanian surgeons and they're like asking me techniques. I'm like, no, listen, I've only done one year of training after med school. They're like, oh yeah, that's more than us. Please teach us. I'm like, Great. But then last June, I got the opportunity to go to Vietnam. So we've got two hospital ships in the Navy, the Mercy and the Comfort. Uh, the Mercy goes out from the West Coast, Comfort goes out from the East Coast. So I got to go to Vietnam for a month and do some joint replacements over there. And you come to realize a lot of these places, like they're surgeons, they go to four, maybe six years of medical school, as they call it, straight out of high school. There's variable whether they have any type of like mentorship training afterwards. They did the approach for the first total hip we did. And I don't think I saw a single structure long enough to fully identify it before they were through it. And all of a sudden we were down to the hip joint and there's a lot of bleeding filling up and they're like, no, no, now we go. And we're just kind of figuring things out. So um, I think it's it's very interesting getting to kind of work with them, kind of show them, no, this is how we do it. This is why we go step-by-step, step, find the layers, stuff like that, and kind of show them that you can do a good job with still identifying things on the way in and out. Any particular advice anyone has for trainees considering military service? I had that question a lot in residency, doing the civilian residency, and I pretty much always gave the same answer. If you want to be in the military... I think this is the best entry route into the military. You come in as an officer, you're treated with respect, you get to practice your craft. If you're doing it for the financials, it's really not worth it because you're going to get a letter. You're going to get orders, not suggestions, where you're going to go and what you're going to do. You're going to move your family and you're going to spend a third to half of your time being an officer and half of your time being a physician. So if you don't have an interest in being in the military, I don't think it's a good route personally. There are other ways to pay for medical school, but if you have an interest in serving your country, I think there's no better way to do it. I think everyone, when you make a life choice, that's quite large at 19. You probably look back at it when you're 30 or 35, a little bit differently. So that perspective is hard to have then. There's certainly pluses and minuses of being in the military, just like there's pluses and minuses to being anywhere else. I mean, I, I wouldn't trade the patient population for anything. I mean, they're fantastic. It is rare that you will develop those types of relationships with patients in the private world, I think, especially when everyone, you know, if you become a part of a team um, and you're like the surgeon that they look to, I mean, it is a very small community and the respect that the patients have for you there is much different than anything I've really encountered outside of the military. It's certainly something I miss. The camaraderie is huge. Even as a junior orthopedic surgeon, like you are treated with a level of respect, like Brandon said, that you know, you don't get elsewhere. So there's a lot of pluses to it. There's plenty of headaches, which we could all talk about for probably an eight hour podcast. 
but you know, at the, at the end of the day, like I was happy with how things worked for me. I, I would may or may not recommend it to anyone else, depending on what they're looking for, like Brandon said, but there's certainly not many things I'm more proud of doing either. That's it. A Brandon's point. If you want to be in the military and you want to be a doctor specifically in the military, it's a great idea. If you're looking for it financially, there's a lot better ways to do it and a lot better ways financially to get through to regardless of what specialty you're looking at. I think the biggest thing I would recommend is talk to somebody who's an actual military doctor and it's not the people that the recruiter tells you to go to. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the time, the recruiters are nurses or enlisted that have no idea about medical. You know, I could write a 12-page dissertation on things my recruiter told me that turned out to not be true. Um, that happened so, to you too. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> but could you write? Could you write a half page about the things they told you that were true? Uh, he did say <laughs> something about a uniform, and he said something about a fitness test. <laughs> okay, but this might be something to explore. Like, what were some common like things that you were told by your recruiter? And I don't know if you guys can say this or not. What were things that were told to you that turned out to be blatantly false? Like, what should people that are interested in the military not actually look forward to? So I would say one thing that people, a lot of people don't know and the recruiters don't necessarily tell you is my recruiter told me you'd have your pick of specialties. You can do whatever you want. If you do not match into the specialty you want, they will force you into an internship no matter what. You will have to do a different internship. They will assign you. They typically cannot force you to do a residency and training you don't want to do, but you may have to do general medical officer too, like Jamie or I did after internship until you finish your payback. So like, you know, my recruiter told me, yeah, whatever you want to do, you have to do it. Well, this past year, we had 34 people applying for seven ortho spots in the Navy. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out 27 people didn't get what they wanted. And those people are doing transitional year internship, other internships like that. You know, there's a lot of things that they can do to you as far as like deployments, moving you around, stuff like that. I mean, if you go into the military and you don't expect to be deployed or don't expect to be moved around or spend time living overseas, I think you're kind of short-sighted, not fully understanding things. But you would definitely be moving around and deploying stuff like that. My recruiter told me that general medical officer tours were going to be gone by the time I got there. That was in 2003. It's 2022 right now. And I know <laughs> several people still doing general medical officer tours. And that recruiter has since retired both from the military and from a civilian job. So, Mark, I think Dusty hit most of them on the head. Their job is to recruit, right? In a sense, they're going to tell you kind of what you want to hear. And if you aren't willing to ask around to figure out if what they're telling you is true or not, then, you know, that's, uh, I, I guess, on you individually. Um, but yeah, I had a lot of the same experiences. Dusty, I, w- I was told I, I wouldn't have to go to a military residency program if I didn't want to. I could pick any specialty, you know, if, that if I didn't get into med school, like the, the contract was null. That may or may not be true. I have no idea. Uh, I question that if that's true or not. And, you know, a, a bunch of other things that, that Dusty mentioned as well. So I thought I probably had more freedom to choose my life than was actually true when it came down to it. And from a finances standpoint, you know, you do get a stipend while you're in medical school, or if you're going to USIS, the military medical school out in DC, you get paid as if you're active duty while going through medical school. And then during residency in the active duty residency programs, you get paid more than you do in civilian residency programs. The day you finish that change reverses at a very, very rapid rate to the point that the highest paid orthopedic surgeon in the entire military is getting paid less than the 10th percentile of civilian orthopedic surgery pay. So as a brand new graduate coming out of residency, you are getting paid about the second percentile of civilian orthopedic surgeon pay. They do not, uh, they don't advertise that on the brochures. And, and Jamie, can you touch on like a lot of orthopedic surgeons in Moonlight, right? Which I personally think is a pretty valuable experience. 
to supplement the pay, but I think everyone on this call has done some moonlighting from a, the, while they're in the, in the military. Can you comment, do you find that to be a valuable experience as you're in your growth as a relatively young surgeon or how did that work out for you? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I believe that if you do not moonlight and you are a military surgeon, you are going to be behind. And I don't think you're going to develop your skills how you need to develop them because we just don't do enough volume. And I don't think we're like everyone's low volume necessarily. So when we were in residency at Brook Army, we did two joints a day and that was our day. And then whenever I got into my own practice, I was like, I'm not just going to do two joints a day. I'm going to do three. And so my mantra is three by three. I have one room and I don't think I've gone past 150 joints in a year. I was on track to do 200 joints. We were doing, you know, two rooms and then COVID happened. And then we all know what happened with that. And it's going to take a long time for the military hospitals to recover from that because we, you know, staff are leaving in droves and they're getting paid more from other places, which is happening in civilian places as well. But the military, it'll be really hard to recover from that. So to answer your question about moonlighting, I think it's critical for people to moonlight. You do have to get approval to do that. It's called off-duty employment. And so your command has to approve that. Me personally, I prefer to do it locally, you know, at hospitals that I can just drive to. And it just saves time and I just do it on the weekends. I know you can travel and, you know, do it for a week at a time. I have started doing that more recently, but for the majority of my career in the military, I've just worked locally on the weekends. I think Jamie kind of hit the nail on the head there. The moonlighting in the military, in my opinion, financially helps, but it's more important from a critical skills. So the volume of surgeries that you will do in the military is not what you'll see in the civilian world. And it's hard to keep up your skills. I think it's important to distinguish between the major medical centers where I think everybody else has been and the smaller MTFs. So I was at two smaller MTFs and for, for my four years in the Navy, I was the highest volume surgeon of any specialty at each hospital. And I maxed that at about 150 cases a year. And so trying to maintain skills with that number of surgeries, especially when you're doing the breadth of surgeries, we are, you get very good at ACLs and shoulder scopes, but the other cases you're really not seeing enough of. The other thing about moonlighting is you cannot moonlight on the military's time. So there's a, a law in the books that technically you can't be getting paid by the military and a civilian entity at the same time. So you have to take leave or do it when you're off on the weekend and hope that nobody finds out about it to have it above board in addition to getting your off-duty employment approved. But this was a big problem. So at my first duty station, we couldn't moonlight because we were on an island and there was really nowhere to moonlight. My second duty station was stateside. And most of the moonlighting that people did was independent medical exams because you could do them on whatever schedule you wanted. Um, and there was no call to clean up. So those were quite lucrative, but you didn't do anything to build your critical skills in doing cases. And so the guys and ladies who are at that duty station now are mostly doing real moonlighting at, at trauma centers to, to keep up their cases. As far as moonlighting goes, I'm at the biggest uh, Navy uh, hospital that we have. 
and our volume is not any better. I just looked at my numbers. I did 146 cases last year, 125 of those were joints. And that's me pushing with my partner on medical leave for six months out of the year where I was doing pretty much all the joints were. It's just a hard system to get things moving. It's very similar to a VA system. I'll do two joints a day. Uh, if I book a third joint, I know I'm going to miss dinner and my kids may very likely be in bed before I get home, even if I only had 180 minutes total tourniquet for three knees. Uh, it's just turnovers are slow. Everything is just a little bit slower down. Um, the other thing about the big military treatment facilities is a lot of times you have residents. My very first case out of fellowship where I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do, how I want to do things. I've got a PGY3 looking at me, hoping to hold the scalpel, wanting to do things, which adds in a uh, entirely uh, additional degree of difficulty to the whole situation at times. For the moonlighting, I do all independent medical evaluations. I fly up to Alaska and Washington usually once a month and do that, uh, do it all on leave. End up, you know, most months I make more during the three days that I do that than I do during my entire uh, military pay. So it's definitely a lucrative thing. It's very hard to find call shifts in San Diego because cost of living is so high and median orthopedic surgeon pay is below the national median. So it's very hard to find call shift to pick up out here. I think, you know, the one thing you touched on, Dusty, with having residents right away, I, I do think certainly in the, in the military, you get precocious opportunities that you would not otherwise be afforded in the civilian sector, right? Like you may be in practice for three years, you're a residency program director, right? You, you may be, in, you know, have been there for five years, you're now the chair of the department. And I think the ability to try to learn from those experiences can certainly help you in, in whatever facet of life you're interested in, whether you're going to spend a career in the military or get out. Uh, I, I know I had some great mentors and they, you know, helped me get involved with the academy early, uh, which spun into a lot of other opportunities for myself as well. For that, I'm forever grateful. And, and I try to do the same. I work with residents or, or fellows, you know, here at Rothman, but it's certainly not the same. They don't have the same opportunities in most of the civilian aspects that we do in the military. So for anyone who's interested in, in having those types of opportunities, I, I think that could be a, a big draw for someone as well. Yeah, I think we, we've, Maybe sounded a little negative on the military in general here, but I think Chad's right. A lot of the things that are positive about the military are completely unique. You will have leadership opportunities early. Two years in, I was the head of the department running, you know, six or seven surgeons and 13 corpsmen. And so that's not something that exists in the civilian world. And it helps you when you transition to the civilian world, when you're trying to manage your smaller team within a department and the opportunities aren't just administrative. My first duty station, there was two of us on the island. And if we couldn't treat something, we had to spin up a three quarter of a million dollar flight to get them back to Tripler or to get them to the mainland. So we did things that you wouldn't do in the civilian world because it was the only option for the patient. And so you'll be put into those situations where you really get to kind of test your mettle and figure out what you're capable of to try and help people. About six months out of residency, I had a guy come in that had a, an elbow ulcer from his wheelchair and the choice that he couldn't fly off island. So the choices were cut off his arm above the elbow or learn how to do a rotational forearm flap. And so a lot of spot time on view Medi and you figure it out. <laughs> it's crazy, but I mean, it's true. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, I, I'm sure Jamie has the same stories as well, but you know, it's kind of overwhelming initially. You look back very fondly at it though. And, and there's certainly a lot of growth that happens. That, again, I don't think you understand is happening until you have a little bit more perspective on things. And I think that Chad touched on this earlier, but the relationships you'll have with your colleagues, the other orthopedic surgeons, but also the other medical providers, the ER providers, the primary care docs, the GMO officers who are doing their general medical tours, 
And the for us, the the IDCs are the independent duty corpsmen who are guys that basically had 18 months of training and how to do medicine and are now on a you know a sub under the water for six months and taking care of problems. The relationships you develop with them is a truly unique experience. And it's very much a all for one kind of mentality of trying to get everybody on board to to take care of the patient or the situation. And it's it's less adversarial than what I witnessed in the academic medical world. So I don't think it's just the academic world, right? I mean, I, I think the world's pretty divisive place, right? And uh, I think practicing medicine in the military, it is pretty unified. I mean, you're going to have some, you know, inter-service conflicts now and then, especially when resources are limited. Um, but at the end of the day, everyone's just trying to do what's right for the patient instead of trying to do what's right for themselves. And that is a, certainly a big difference between most other medical uh, practices I've seen, Rothman excluded. <laughs> well, I mean, it sounds like, you, you, you know, you've all talked about some struggles, and, but it also sounds like all of you have learned many very useful skills, right, from your time in the military that you'll be able or that you already are using now in practice in leadership and in, in operating and training trainees. So that's, I think that's, it's been very enlightening to hear. I did want to know if there's anything else that you kind of wish us civilian surgeons understood about training or being an orthoplasty surgeon from the military. Is there anything else that you wish we knew about what you've had to experience, what you've went through? Don't expect me to be good with uh, any type of firearm just because I was in the military. I have no idea what I'm doing with most of them. I'll be perfectly honest. I don't understand any of that stuff. And I'm glad I did not injure myself or someone else during my active duty service. I'm good with firearms just because I'm a redneck who likes guns. The 14 years I've been on active duty have been 14 of the least amount of rounds I've put through through firearms in my life. So I think other thing people don't realize is like, at any point in time, even as an orthopedic surgeon, I can get called to go get sent over like where Jamie was to go be the orthopedic surgeon doing you know, compartment releases, fasciotomies, doing X-fixes, doing amputations, doing combat stuff. So it's one of those, you, you kind of in the back of your mind, you know, yes, I'm doing mostly arthroplasty, but you have to kind of always be ready to to go do anything else. The other thing is I'm currently looking for a job. So it's something else. If anybody knows of any good arthroplasty jobs, particularly in the uh, upper Midwest or any uh, near ski areas, please, uh, please reach out. The other thing to, to think about is if you're in the military and you want to do a fellowship, whether it's oh, yeah. during your military time or after, you will get a better fellowship than you deserve. Because if you do it while you're active duty, the military pays for it. So it's a free fellowship for wherever you go. And if you do it afterwards, like I did, you'll, you'll trick the Cleveland Clinic into thinking you're a well-polished surgeon and they'll take you. So there's a benefit there if you want to get into a, a fellowship that you don't really stack up to. One side of note on that is that while you're on active duty, you have to apply for permission to do a fellowship. And a lot of us apply three, four years in a row before you finally get permission. So you have to do get, if you do it on active duty, you have to get permission from your branch of service to do it before you can do it. But no, talking to a lot of people who have done fellowships after the military, it definitely works out in your favor. People know, you know the military people expect great things out of you. Um, I was two and a half years out from my last joint replacement before I started fellowships. So my advertisement for myself was I'm a blank slate coming in with no bad habits. Yeah. The other thing to note about fellowship is that just because you want to do a fellowship doesn't mean the military is going to let you do a fellowship. So I originally wanted to do trauma 
first, but the military was not training any traumatologists because we were oversaturated. I really liked arthroplasty as well. So I did arthroplasty instead because, I mean, like we've already mentioned, most of what you do in the military, if you don't do a fellowship, is going to be sports. It's like 90% sports, a little bit of hand, a little bit of trauma. Um, That's about it. I didn't know what I wanted to do for fellowship. I kept switching back and forth all over throughout residency. So I think if someone had pinned me down in residency, I would have done sports or trauma. It wasn't until I got into practice and started having my own patients who I did arthroplasty on that I, I realized how much I enjoyed it. So, and, and again, in retrospect, that was a, a huge benefit to me that if you had asked me when I was signing up to do stuff, I, I wouldn't have said, you know, I wouldn't have thought of that at all. But being a generalist for a few years really helped me figure out what I wanted to do as well. And again, you don't have that pressure to, I think a lot of the residents now, they feel like they have to pick a residency or pick a fellowship, you know, what they want to do when they're a PGY2. You're a 25-year-old kid trying to figure out what you want to do with your life. That's it's quite pressure-inducing. You don't have that when you're in the military. I know we're running low on time, but Jamie, do you mind talking a little bit about what your experience in the military was like as someone who's gay? Sure. I mean, basically, because of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and the fact that you'd have to pay back your scholarship or you could be kicked out, basically have to be in the closet during that time. And so... I started residency in 2010, so I was in the closet until I was a third year, because that was right after Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. So I gradually just started coming out to co-residents that I felt comfortable with, who I thought were my friends, because because orthopedics is the least diverse specialty out there, it wasn't just that, oh, you know, now that Don't Ask, Don't Tell is gone, like I can just be who I want to be. I mean, orthopedics is still very conservative and um, doesn't like to be different. <laughs> we all know this, sorry. But yeah, so it was a very like slow process. And like my biggest fear was that my wife wouldn't be able to come to my graduation. I was just like so paranoid about that. We were just girlfriends at the time but then I got married whenever I was a chief resident and so that was a little scary it caused a lot of anxiety I would say was the biggest thing for me I didn't want to share things about my personal life because I didn't want it to keep going down to further questioning so it made it hard to kind of form relationships I think it's still hard for people to do it because they're just afraid that because of homophobia and that type of thing. So the good thing about the military was that they literally said, okay, we're not doing this anymore. And so it made it somewhat okay for me in my mind, but then I was still in an orthopedic residency. So it still made it a little bit difficult because you still hear people say things. And that's one thing that a lot of LGBTQ people do is they just listen to see what people are saying and how they're reacting to certain situations. And then they'll be like, okay, I'm reading the room. I'm not going to share anything about myself. So it was a challenge, but eventually got there. My wife was able to go to graduation, had a great program director who thought it was crazy for not wanting to bring my wife, but it was a real fear for me. So I'm just glad that we're finally making progress in that area. Sure. And I guess that is one of the things that we haven't really talked about, but the impact of being in the military on having a significant other and what your significant other goes through. Brandon, do you mind talking a little bit about that? Yeah. So I commissioned, I think I was 22 when I was commissioned, not married. And by the time I finished my nine years of out service, I was married and my wife is a nurse. 
And so it's been very hard on her career to have to move every two years and reestablish a practice. By the time she got her license and started working, it was maybe 18 months before she had to move again. And so the impact on her career has been fairly devastating to this point. Now that we're stationary, we're hoping that it'll improve. But she went from being a, a neonatal ICU nurse to being uh, an adult ICU nurse to being a PACU nurse, back to the neonatal ICU to stay-at-home mom, none of which was planned or by design. But unless your spouse does something that they can do on a military base, it can be quite difficult for them moving frequently. And even at that point, the military hiring process is kind of alluded to earlier is very slow moving. When people leave, it's very hard to replace them. My wife's a physical therapist. When I went up to uh, Camp Pendleton, she applied for a physical therapy job on base. I was there for two years. She applied a month before we got there, two months before we left. They called her in and said, hey, we'd like to start your orientation for the job. You got it. And she's like, what are you talking about? And they're like, no, the physical therapy job you interviewed for. She's like, that was almost two years ago. Like, yeah, we got all the paperwork through. She's like, well, we're moving back down to San Diego in two months. Like, there's no point. But yeah, my wife, you know, my middle one was born six months before we moved to Japan. So she didn't work, go back to work before that. Two years in Japan, she couldn't work. Then a year in Boston fellowship, we kind of did the math that, you know, the cost of uh, childcare, she would have to work 36 hours a week and pay zero taxes, which is very hard to do in Massachusetts, just even break even. And then we came back out here and she started looking for jobs and then COVID hit. And with not knowing whether I was going to get deployed or anything like that, it's, made it very difficult. So she's been stay-at-home mom, not necessarily by choice for majority of the last six years, all because of the military. Are there support groups and things for military spouses or specifically spouses of military surgeons or medicine? There's essentially <laughs> the most entitled military wise, wherever you go, there's a Facebook page for spouses of whatever base you're at. And then there's a Facebook page for military spouses of whatever base you're at. And they know the ins and outs and the dirty little secrets of every single town in America. It's an amazing resource. (laughs) Yeah, there's not, some places have formal support groups for military spouses or things of that nature. A lot of it's informal. Some of my wife's best friends around here are people that we know that are spouses of people we work with or people that I work with that just kind of understand what's going on because a lot of times you move somewhere, people know you're going to be there for two to three years. Like Boston, we were only there for a year. There are a lot of people, as soon as they meet you and find out you're only there for a year, it's like, well, we're not going to waste a whole lot of emotional investment on knowing somebody that's going to be there for a year, two years, even three years. So military people, it takes a special kind of breed to kind of get used to it and you get adaptable and move around a lot. But yeah, largely it's the support group is spouses of people that do the same thing we do. Yeah. I, I used to say the only person tougher than a Marine is a Marine's wife. Because they get the same as ours do. They get drug all over the world and, and don't have the same command structure support that we do. But it is an amazing thing to see a group of military spouses get together. And within two weeks, they all have best friends because they're used to it. There's no one on any base more entitled than spouse of an E6. <laughs> <laughs> Listen up, maggots. This is called the gauntlet, and this is how it's going to go. I am going to ask you some questions regarding total joint replacement. They're going to be tough, but they will be fair. You may not appreciate the questions, but your audience will appreciate your answer. You may not survive the gauntlet, but this maggots is a risk I am willing to take for the sake of our seven listeners, including my mom. Laura, I will see you in Thanksgiving. Please make the usual stuffing. So the first question goes 
to Brandon, what is your total hip arthroplasty approach? Anterior-based approach, robotic, if I can get it approved by insurance. Not going to keep doing that voice. Jamie, total hip approach? Direct anterior. Dusty? Two-thirds anterior, except for the offsite hospital operate where I don't have a HANA table or a fluoro, and then it's posterior. Or Vietnam is posterior as well. You got to do a mock table. Honestly, it's the same surgery. I do a mock table. We were all on table in residency, and I was terrified of doing a mock table. And it's the exact same thing. If you want to do get a joint commission permission to operate on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's cleaner than my OR was on Guam. Valid. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's do how do you guys determine your distal femoral cut? Do you template before? Or do you do a standard five millimeter valgus cut? How do you determine your distal cut in a total knee? Five and ten. Robotics. Template, robotics. if it's more than a degree off of five, I'll change it. Cemented versus uncemented. Press fit. 65. Oh, well, hip or knee? Let's go knees. Sorry, knees. So, Brandon, you said press fit? Under 65, press fit. Over 65, questionable, but cemented. Okay. Jamie? Most of mine are press fit. I've really, the pendulum has really swung for me. Dusty? Under 65, press fit, pretty much everybody, unless they give a really good reason not to. 65 to 70 gray zone, over 70 cement. Don't you miss the smell? Did any of you miss the smell? No? Oh, I love the 20 minutes that I have to see my kids at night. It's, wow. it's weird for the first, like, 10 cases, because you don't know what to do with your hands after the implants go in. And then you <laughs> kind of sit there like... You go get a cup of coffee while your PA closes the capsule. Yeah. A resurfacing patella, Jamie. Non-resurface. Dusty? Resurface about 70% and try and not resurface as much as possible and the patella looks good. Brandon? 99% resurface. And then let's go last question for your poly. What do you usually do in total knees? Let's go Brandon first. CR. Well, deep dish CS. Deep dish, yeah. Jamie? Deep dish, yeah. Dusty? Ultra congruent. Cut the PCL if I need to, save it as much as I can. Yep. I think that's just the fellowship answer. The community guys just cut them all out and put PSs in. Yeah. I'm track. convinced that in 10 years that everybody's going to be cutting out the PCL and doing some sort of deep dish ultra congruent. Yeah. I totally. Be quicker, cheaper, easier to balance. Yeah. You either do an ultra congruent or highly stabilized. That's my decision. Totally. Yep. Thank you so much to our guests. Dr. Shewitt, Dr. Bellamy, and Dr. Priyareshi for joining us. You can find information for how to join the Young Arthroplasty Group at ahks.org and follow us on social media. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.